You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hello, everyone. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and um, I'm so glad that you're joining us this morning as we're uh, continuing our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And um, I've said this a couple of times throughout the series, but I just really love this book because in it, uh, the Apostle Paul unpacks just the life-changing uh, ramifications of the gospel. And In case you're fuzzy about what we mean when we use the word gospel, let me just give you a simple definition. The gospel is just a statement about uh, uh, the good news, really, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And uh, this book, the book of Ephesians, we get to see how the gospel uh, of Jesus impacts our lives in critical and vital ways, not just for eternity, but in our life right now, in the here and now. And today... We're going to see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that's the passage we'll be in. We're going to see in that passage how the gospel impacts uh, the issues with race and, our, and is the solution for racial reconciliation. And uh, friends, <laughs> I know that paying attention uh, during Zoom is hard. <laughs> But I want to really ask you to try to lean in today. Uh, I'll really be as bold as saying maybe take some notes, do something that's going to cause you to lean in because this passage is so good and so full of good news that is deeply needed for the vast majority of us are currently living through the most racially turbulent year of our lives. And so we need to hear from God on this so that we can be encouraged by what he has done and so that we can be equipped as ministers of reconciliation, which is what we're called to be in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. Okay, so this is where we're going this morning. Now, I will say that there's probably a good chance that you might get very skeptical when a white guy like me says he knows what will bring peace and reconciliation between the races. And I get that. Uh, I would be skeptical, too, because, I mean, what do I know? Which is, let me just say, why I'm not going to be sharing my personal ideas or solutions this morning. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's solution, what God has done to bring reconciliation and make peace. And, friends, God's solution is not a hypothetical or simply a spiritually abstract solution. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is proof of that. For in this passage, Paul explains how the gospel brought about reconciliation and peace between two races of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, who hated each other and wanted nothing to do with one another. Now, in case you don't know, it's helpful to get a little context. A Gentile is just anyone who's not a Jew, all right? And so the church of Ephesus was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which to us is like hardly even noteworthy. But I'll tell you, in that day, it was entirely radical. For Jews and Gentiles did not interact in any meaningful way. Like you would never find them in each other's homes. For the Jews believed the Gentiles were unclean. And the Gentiles despised the Jews in response to how the Jews despised them. But then, 
with the birth of the church, they began to relate to one another as family. Now, what brought about that change? Well, if you want to know what was powerful enough to bring peace and unity between these two different races, then join me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. For there, in this kind of outline for where we'll go this morning, we're going, to, we're going to see what our problem is and what God's solution is and the result of God's solution. All right, so let's begin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 starts this way. It says, therefore, remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Okay, so um, <laughs> Paul begins... Uh, this part of the letter by calling the Gentiles to, uh, <laughs> to remember a couple of really painful things. First, he reminds them of how the Jews used to mock them by calling them the uncircumcised, which yeah, just a <laughs> rule of thumb here. It's, it's never use. It's never kind to use. Um, how should I say uh, a private part as a way to refer to an entire group of people. All right, that's that's mocking. That's that's not kind, and that's what they're doing. Paul's like, remember how they used to do that? They're like, yeah, I remember. I remember that. That was awful. And then Paul reminds them how they were excluded from citizenship in Israel and outside of God's covenant promises, which the Jews loved to lord over the Gentiles, which just deepened their great division. I mean, see, there was this incredible hostility that existed between the Jews and Gentiles. Hostility caused by a problem, the very same problem that we have today, a problem that creates division and breeds racism. And what's that problem? Well, it's the problem of a misplaced identity. See, last week I talked about how in Genesis 1, 26 or 28, we're told that God created us in his image and we were meant to derive our identity and our sense of great worth from him, but in our sin. We turned away from him, and having been separated from God, the source of, of life and identity, we're now left looking for something to give us a sense of identity and worth. <laughs> and the way that we most often do that now, apart from God, is by recognizing something that's good about us or distinct about us or good or distinct about our group or a race of people that we're connected to. And then we anchor our identity to that and our sense of worth to that. But the problem with forming our identity in that way is that it leads to division because it naturally leads to an us versus them mentality. For our identity is now defined, at least in part, by who I am not or what I am not like. See, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles serve as a, a clear case study of how this plays out. For the Jewish people knew they were God's chosen people. God had given them the law and his uh, covenant promises, his gracious good gifts, so that they could be 
a blessing to the nations, Genesis 12. But because of their misplaced identity, instead of using this gifts to be a blessing, they looked to God's gifts as proof that they were better than others, superior to the Gentiles. And this shows up in all of the identity language in verse 11 and 12. I mean, for the, for, from the Jews' perspective, the Gentiles were the uncircumcised because they were the circumcised. The Gentiles were foreigners to the covenant because they were the recipients of the covenants. And the Gentiles were without God because they were God's chosen people. And the result of their misplaced identity where they, and this is like subtle, but it's, it's, it's so important, where they looked to God's gifts instead of God himself to give them their meaning and to give them a sense of identity. The result of that is that it formed a deep division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, to be clear, it is good and it is healthy to be glad about who you are and to rejoice in the good gifts God gives you and how he's made you, including your race, for God made you that way on purpose. But what's dangerous is when we anchor our identity and our worth to what makes us distinct as a race of people, because that's what creates division between the races, just as it did for the Jews and the Gentiles. For it, as I said, creates an us versus them mentality. For an us versus them mentality can cause you to feel like your race is superior than other, to other races, leading to horrors like um, slavery. But most often, what an us versus them mentality does in our day is that it leads to what's known as in-group bias. An in-group bias is this. It, it, it's the tendency to give preferential treatment to people I consider like me, which is more subtle, but still a very divisive and destructive form of racism. The pastor and author, former NFL football player, Miles McPherson, writes about this in his uh, book, uh, The Third Option. And he explains that the stronger your identity and stronger you identify with one group or, or your you know, race, then the stronger your in-group bias becomes. And study after study shows that in-group bias leads to the following kinds of attitudes. It leads to us assuming I will get along easier with those who are like me. Or I am more inclined to spend time socially with those who are like me. Or I give the benefit of doubt quicker to those who are like me. Or I express more grace when mistakes are made by those who are like me. Or I possess positive assumptions about those who I consider like me. The people that are in my in-group. The people that I identify strongly with. And in-group bias has the opposite effect as well, which is known as outgroup discrimination, where I assume I will have a harder time getting along with those who are not like me, or I rarely give the benefit of the doubt to those who are not like me, or I express far less grace when mistakes are made by those who are not like me, or I possess negative assumptions about those who are not like me. And friends, all of these attitudes are the result of misplaced identity. 
See, for as a result of turning from God and our sin, we no longer receive our ultimate identity from him. Therefore, we form an identity by recognizing the things that set us apart from others. And once we form our identity off of that, it naturally leads to an us versus them mentality, creating in-group and out-group bias, resulting in us treating people differently based on who we identify with. And that fuels racism and hostility. And the truth is, we can do this with just about anything. It's not just a racial issue. For example, it's great to be a hard worker. And it's okay to be glad about that. But if it's an identity marker for you, if it's the thing you boast in, if you believe that being a hard worker is a part of what gives you worth, then you have to at least differentiate yourself from those who are lazy. And most likely, not only will you differentiate yourself from those who are lazy, but you will also feel superior to those who are lazy. Because if you don't, then that means being a hard worker doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter, then it's not strong enough to give you a name or to give you an identity. See how misplaced identity fuels division? And we can do this with economic status and how we school our kids. And if we're environmentally conscientious or if we're smart or if we're wise with our money or if we're moral or for how we vote. I mean, it, it, and as a result, it all leads to division. See, this is an identity problem. And it's one of the world's most longstanding and upsetting problems. So Paul, in this passage, begins by reminding the Ephesian church of this problem. And then he points them to God's solution. Here's what he says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. See, friends, what's God's solution to our problem? (laughs) It's Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. For through Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. Now, like, let's, I want us to think deeply about this. Like, how does this work? And this is so, so, so rich. So try to lean in here. But listen, when Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of sin that separated us from God, he also destroyed the dividing wall that divides us from others. And that's Paul's 
point here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is all about how Jesus destroyed the dividing wall between us and God, the vert- reconciling us vertically. But here, Paul then says, as a result, now Jesus divide- destroyed the dividing wall that separates us from others, from Jews and from Gentiles, from black and from white, and whatever distinctions we're trying to make, he says, no, nah, it's divided. I've, it's gone. I've destroyed it so that you can also be reconciled horizontally. And here's why that what Jesus has done for us destroys the dividing wall that allows it possible for us to be reconciled with one another. Here's why. It's because the gospel reforms our identity. For you see, the gospel levels the ground by destroying our claims to superiority. For the gospel's claim is that we all needed Jesus to die for us in order for our penalty of our sins to be paid. And that truth humbles us and puts us all on level ground. We see the power of this demonstrated in this passage. For when Paul uses language like near and far away, he was using temple language. For in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a literal wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. The Gentiles were only allowed in the outer court. They could not get close to God. They were far away when they came to the temple. In fact, in the 1870s, they actually found the wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews in the temple grounds. And on this wall were inscribed the words, proceed no further upon fear of death. Like that's a literal dividing wall of hostility. And so literally the Jews, because they had the law, were able to be nearer to God than the Gentiles who didn't have the law. But the truth was, neither race was keeping the law. And therefore, they both needed God to die for them. And so Jesus came, and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For he, as verse 14 says, is himself is our peace who has made the two groups one has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. See, friends, the gospel shows us that all of the things that we used to prop us up, to prove that we are somebody, that we're valuable and to give us a name, they don't actually do anything for us when it comes to our greatest need. None of those things, not our race, not our political party or economic status, or the way we raise our family or how hard we work or sexual orientation or how smart we are. None of those things has the power to make us right with God. Because in the end, we're all still sinners. And so we're all desperately and equally in need of a Savior. And when you get this, it will humble you. It humbles us as we recognize that we're all on level ground before God, thus robbing us of our feelings of superiority. See, for the cross declares that we, no matter what we do or who we think we are, we all needed God to die for us in order for us to be reconciled to him. And in light of that, what ground do we stand on to say that we're superior than anyone else. 
See, the gospel destroys our claims of superiority. That's not all the gospel does. For it also lifts us to the heavens as it restores our true identity. For on the cross, Jesus answers our heart question of, you know, am I valuable? For from the cross, God declares that we are so significant to him that he would die for us so that we could be restored to him. As we saw last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because of what Jesus has graciously done for us, we are now seated with him in the seat of honor in the heavenly realms, lifted to the heavens legally, and we'll one day experientially see this. This is who we are, restored to God. We matter, we're significant, we're loved by God himself to the point that he would die for us, reconcile to God in Christ. And when you realize that, you and I will, will be freed from trying to form our own identity, freed from looking around to find something that sets you apart or scrambling to achieve something that will make you distinct. Instead, you and I can receive our identity through Christ. For in Christ, God, with all of his authority that comes with, you know, being God, with all of his authority, he tells you who you are, that you are his, that you're his beloved son, you're his beloved daughter, as Ephesians 1 spells out. And you and I, we can rest in that. So friends, in this powerful way, the gospel reforms our identity. For the gospel both humbles us and honors us. And we're left with no ground to stand on in regards to feeling superior to anyone else. And we're left not needing any other ground to stand on in order to know who we are and if we're valuable. And the result of this, as Paul says in verse 16, is that Jesus has put to death our hostility so that we can be and have peace with one another. See, that's the result of God's solution. In verses 13 through 18, the word peace is repeated four times. We're told that Jesus is our peace, that he makes peace, and that he preaches peace. And the peace that is found in him is not just a laying down your weapons and choosing not to fight anymore kind of peace. It is far better than that. It's not just a peace that causes us to get along with one another. It is a peace that causes us to belong to one another. Where two become one. Where enemies become brothers and sisters. For his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And when Paul says Jesus created himself in himself one new humanity, he's saying something incredibly powerful. For the, you see in the Greek language, there's two words that, that, uh, that um, we translate new. One is the word neos, which means something new as it relates to time, like the new iPhone 12 is coming out, right? Like new as in the, the most recent. But here Paul doesn't use that Greek word. Instead, he uses the Greek word kahinos, which means new in the sense of a new invention, something that the world doesn't even have a category for yet, something that we would say is brand new. And friends, that's what the first century church, for the first time in all of history, you had. 
where Jews and Gentiles in deep, were in deep, meaningful relationships with one another. I mean, it was completely unheard of. For there were true walls of hostility that could never be torn down on their own. But Jesus, destroying the dividing walls, made the two one. And they didn't just start get to getting along with one another. They now belonged to one another. Which, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, the end of this chapter, that's what Paul elaborates on, saying, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, this isn't surface-level unity. In Christ, different races were now one, no longer divided, no longer strangers and aliens, no more in-crowd, out-crowd. I said the different races become fellow citizens with God as our king. But even better, in Christ, we all become, as it says, members of the household of God, which means we're now brothers and sisters with God as our father. And so when I see someone who looks different than me, it's like that, well, yeah, they, you do. I mean, you, I'm white, you're black. But that's not the thing that defines us. No, we are like each other in that we are in the household of God. You're my brother and you're my sister before you're anything else. And as family, we're like each other because of what Christ has done for each other. I needed him just as much as you needed him. I'm lifted to the heavens just as much as you're lifted to the heavens. We're in the household of God. He's, he's our father. Just we're brothers and sisters. Now we relate accordingly. And finally, what in this path, in these verses here, uh, uh, Paul kind of mixes metaphors. And he, he says, also says that, we, that in Christ, we're like bricks of a temple that's indwelled by God. And uh, though this is a mix of metaphors, it it actually increases the level of intimacy and and highlights the real level of reconciliation that God's provided for us in Christ. Because uh, when Jesus is our cornerstone, which is the entire, and holding the entire structure together, then this says, now God can live within us. And this isn't talking about individually, though that's true. That Paul is saying in a unique way, corporately within the new humanity, we are brought together in we're brought together in him as the church, as the body of Christ, together with the Spirit of God living within us. So, what's the result of God's solution? Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with one another. Peace and the birth of a new humanity. Which means the groundwork, hear this. This means that the groundwork for racial reconciliation is not something you and I have to achieve. Instead, first, it's something that we must believe Jesus has already achieved. He is our peace, and he has made peace. And then it's something we must live out, like walk in as ministers of reconciliation. And my prayer, friends, is that we as Midtown Church would do this. In light of how God has loved and served us, we'd love and serve 
our city and that we would be ministers of reconciliation in Austin, helping because of how Christ has reconciled us, that we would then love and live in a way that brings reconciliation and points people to Jesus, the one who ultimately provides and has provided the solution for reconciliation. And it's also my prayer that as we do that, our church would continue to grow in greater and greater diversity. But as Pastor Brian Loritz has wisely observed, church congregations reflect dinner tables. And so for our church to represent and demonstrate the racial reconciliation accomplished by Jesus, it'll begin at our dinner tables and our personal relationships. And that's going to take sustained intentionality from us. But friends, let's do this with Jesus. For he died not just to reconcile us to God, but also to one another. For Jesus is God's solution to our sin problem, our identity problem, and our racism problem. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay. Now, I would love to wrap up here. Uh, and so, but I'm going to go a little longer, and you have to bear with me, but here's why. It's because I'm afraid that if I stopped there, many of you would be left wondering why, if what this passage says is true, then why is there, and why has there been so much racism and division within the American church? And that is a very fair question. So let me, let me, let me address that. To answer that, I just want to share something that Tim Keller once said, where he once pointed out that we are all shaped by powerful forces. And the more powerful a force, the more fitted to anyone else who's been shaped by that same force. For example, we are Americans, and that's a force that shapes us, and therefore, we feel connection with other Americans. So if you're traveling overseas and you run into another American, you will feel a connection, probably just because you speak the same language, but that's a result of the force that has shaped you. But if you're traveling overseas and you run into a fellow Austinite, then you'll feel an even stronger connection. But let's say you're traveling overseas and you run into your sister. Well, then you're going to feel an even far greater connection. Why is that? Well, it's because family is an even stronger force that has shaped you and fit you together. Now hear this. The gospel is the most powerful force of all time. And literally in Romans 1, 16, we're told that it is the, the power of God. And it doesn't get more powerful than that. And Paul is saying in this passage, he's trying to help us see that if the gospel has shaped you, then that is more powerful than your country or your family or your race. For through it, Jesus has actually made you citizens of a new country, members of a new family and a part of a new humanity. But to really experience this, you have to let the gospel shape you. Like you have to place yourself under it. Like you have to let God change you. See, when you believe the gospel initially, you are at that moment positionally, le legally changed by the gospel. So you, so you already are in Christ. 
but you will only experientially realize this now to the degree that you let the gospel shape you now. For as the truth of the gospel is pressed into your heart, then you will grow in humility and grow in confidence in your identity in Christ and grow in your love for others. But if we cling to other things to give us our name, our identity, then we will continue to feel superior or at least unlike others. So why has there been so much racism and division in the church? It's not because the gospel is not powerful enough to change us. It's because we have neglected to let it change us. So let me ask you, friends. Is the gospel humbling you? Are your feelings of superiority towards others dwindling? Is it changing how you see others? Causing you to see that they are like you way more than they are not like you? Is the gospel lifting you up? Are you letting it answer your heart questions of who am I and do I matter and am I significant? Are you letting go of all the things you're tempted to cling to to prove your worth? Are you clinging to the cross instead? See, if the gospel is shaping you, then you will relate humbly and you will know who you are. Friends, are you being shaped and fitted together by the gospel? Let me pray now for God to do that work in each of us so that we will join him in his reconciling work in the world. Father, we do, we ask you now, shape us, to form us according to the gospel. God, rid us of our feelings of superiority. Humble us by the fact that we needed you to die for us, to reconcile us to you. God, as that comes home to our heart, that not only did we need you, but that you, in your great mercy and love for us, did die for us, Jesus. That it would give us confidence in Christ, know, help us know who we are in Christ, form our identity in Christ, and then, God, having been reconciled to you, God, would we join you in being reconcilers with you? For Jesus, you did not just come to bring us vertical reconciliation with the Father, but horizontal reconciliation with one another across racial lines and any other things that divide us. God, shape us by this incredible truth. May we marvel at the gospel. God, it's incredible what you have done for us. It's the solution to the problems. Let us lean into it, be changed by it, and then extend it by how we demonstrate it in loving one another, loving people like you loved us, and telling them about what you've done. God, we need you to heal our land. You have already provided the means for reconciliation. Let us believe it and walk in it, personally being changed, and then bringing the change to our world. We love you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.